we've, what we've been studying as a subject is how to read and uh, study and interpret the Bible and some things that are involved in that. And two words that we looked at quite a bit is the word exegesis and um, hermeneutics. And we noted that uh, exegesis is uh, going back to the passage and putting yourself in the place of the people that initially received it and then understanding it from their standpoint. Uh, started off, we'll get to the papers in a little bit dealing with some things on the uh, translation, but we did just a little bit of review that we've been studying on how to read the Bible and thus far we've looked at uh, two words, exegesis and hermeneutics, and we defined uh, exegesis as going to the passage, and before you make any application whatsoever, you, you try to find out what it meant to the people who initially received it. And we noted that uh, uh, many times uh, mistakes are made in dealing with the Bible because people will read it as if Paul or whoever it is is writing it directly to them. Uh, when in reality the material was written uh, anywhere from 2,000 to 3,500 plus years back and was written to a specific people for a specific reason. And so that before we can do anything with it, we need to go back and look at it and see what it actually meant to the people at that time. And then after that, we get into hermeneutics where we uh, look at the passage and its meaning and then look at it from the standpoint of making applications uh, to ourselves. And we know that sometimes that uh, people can make wrong applications if they don't do exegesis of the passage first. Uh, some of the tools that are necessary in exegesis are Bible dictionary, handbook, encyclopedia, uh, good commentaries, uh, a number of other books dealing with the history, and sometimes when you mention that, I'm not saying that everybody has to have a library to, to read and, and study the Bible, but sometimes when you mention these things, uh, especially people that have been brought up in a religious background and have just simply believed from child, childhood, there's a tendency to think, well, it's just not that complicated, you know, that you really shouldn't have to do this. You just should have to uh, pick up the Bible and and read it. And we're going to see today when we look at the translations that um, even that's not as, as simple as some uh, uh, makes it appear uh, if you're going after truth in the passage. But in reality, everybody either does this or they depend on somebody else. In other words, it's uh, either uh, from when it comes to understanding the Bible, I'm saying that nobody just picks it up and, and reads it without any help whatsoever and then understands in any real full sense whatsoever, if they're not doing this, uh, then they're depending on somebody else to do it. But somebody is, is actually doing the thing itself. Now, Tom, sometimes when we... Sorry. I was going to say, just for um, the people that were not here, a couple of examples we had I thought was good, like the wearing of covering. That yeah, we'll get to yeah, okay. in the translations okay. on that. Okay, but sorry. on the, the things about uh, the, uh, the tools and those that's involved, 
sometimes it uh, varies. The, we present that material like uh, uh, Peter called uh, the apostles, and they, man, they just immediately left everything and they followed him. And after three years, they're uh, they're out preaching and they convert people and they're preaching. And so it's presented in a very simple way. But uh, first of all, what did the apostles and those people have going for them that you don't have today? The they initial could ask questions. They could ask Jesus questions. Okay. Okay, they, pardon? The direct, they were there. Right, the direct <laughs> contact. Uh, did anybody have, uh, when the and apostles contact, are with uh, Jesus and he's talking to them, did anybody have to tell them uh, anything about the customs or the culture or the language in order to, for them to understand? What about the idioms of the day? Did, did Jesus have to stop and say, now, now this is an idiom I'm using and, you know, don't take it literal? Uh, or when he used a hyperbole, which was very common among them. They, the, the Semitic people really bought into hyperboles. Good example, if, if your eye offend you, pluck it out and cast it from you. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it out and, and throw it. Uh, hyperboles were very common uh, in the way they expressed themselves. Well, uh, a number of things that they did in their speech, those people just knew. There, there was no explanation that was needed uh, for any of those things. Uh, he didn't have to stop and explain the geography to them. Or he didn't have to say to them, you, now, as he began to talk to them, he didn't have to say, now you guys remember that the Romans came in here in uh, 63 years ago, you know, or, or in uh, 63 AD, and they would have been called it AD then, of course, but he, he didn't have to say uh, those kind of things, and we're now under the dominion of Rome, and, uh, and before that we were under this, and before that, they knew all of that. I mean, they, they, they just simply knew it. It was part of their experience. And so he could talk just like you and I can converse about Kingston, Tennessee, and we don't have to explain every little thing about uh, the culture and things like that. And, and we, we know what the big orange is. Can you imagine somebody from another country listening to us talk about the big orange? Uh, and, 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 and I'm telling you guys, hey, you may be the big orange, but I'm for the big blue. You know, you know what I'm talking about, too, those of you that know me. And so we, we just we don't explain those things. It's part of our culture, and, and we have it. Uh, they already lived in that culture, they knew that, and they, they understood it, and they didn't need uh, the explanation of it. Uh, when the apostles went out to preach, and, and you have Jesus tell them to go out and to preach some things about the kingdom, uh, what, what else did, what did they have with them? That uh, they had a couple of things going for them that made it uh, a task that's quite different than somebody going out to preach today. Think of all the context where he sends them out to preach, whether it's the 70 or the uh, 12, uh, either one of them. Or when they sent others out after they first converted them, what did they go with? Holy Spirit. Okay, they, they went and what was the, the evidence that they gave for the truthfulness of their statement? I mean, after all, they were... Uh, they were out claiming okay the miracles I mean after all can you imagine put yourself in their shoes how would you like to go tell the world that this guy you crucified is really God you know I bet that would go over big 
Well, we know that even they said it was foolish, didn't they? Uh, the, 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 you know, who can believe this nonsense? But then um, there were the miracles. And so uh, you've got some sick folk that are uh, healed and some other things taking place and, and, that grab, and people speaking in languages that they've never learned and, and all of a sudden we've got everybody's attention. And so that they went with that. And not only that, uh, how many notes did the apostles need when they spoke? Okay, he said that um, the Spirit would give you remembrance of all that I've said to you, that you won't, you won't even have to give a second thought. It's going to be there. Whatever God does first is done in a miraculous way. The first human beings were a miracle. The first trees, the first everything was a miracle. But then after the, the miraculous starting, then there was a natural order of reproduction, right? And, and now if you, if you want a child, you don't get him instant, you know, at 30 years of age or whatever. If you want a child now, you go through a process and, and, and a growing process, and it's a, it's a lot different than just having Adam and Eve there as adults on the spot. And the same with the animal kingdom and, and everything else. So when God first revealed himself, the word came in a miraculous way. And he was speaking directly, and, and the miracles were there. Well, what about us today? How many of you guys can perform any miracles? You know, I'm easy to convince. All anybody has to do is do it, you know, and I, and I see it. So when I go out to tell somebody that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, you know, that uh, I'm not going to raise any dead folk. And, I, and I'm not, and I'm not going to be giving sight to the blind or anything like that. You know, it, it, it's, it's not happening. And, and what I know about language, I learn. That, that's it. And um, I take my Bible with me. New Testament, no. Because that I, I don't remember the whole thing. You know, and, and uh, that I need, I need to go over material and everything. So we're really in a different... It, it's not quite fair for somebody to talk about Christianity today and say, hey, those guys just got up and went. Uh, and what do you mean we have to do all this studying and all? Uh, when you look at something 2,000 years after it happened, then you and I have some things that they didn't have now. And what are that? What do we have that they didn't have? Okay, they didn't have the completed Bible. They, they had the Old Testament. Uh, Brian, you had some Better else? transportation. Okay, we got better transportation. <laughs> <laughs> we've got the completed material. We can uh, sit down and, and we can evaluate it. And now, we were not there listening to Jesus, but through textual scholarship, we can verify that this material was written in the first century of the New Testament, and it's been accurately transmitted through the years. We can do that. We can do it in a very dogmatic, no if, and, or but way. The information is there, but you don't do it in a moment in time. It, it takes study to do it, but once you study it, you can do it. All right, the same thing with, uh, do we have anything of a, of a miraculous nature to offer? Prophecy fulfilled. Okay. Prophecy is a miracle in words, isn't it? In fact, I don't know of any miracle that would be more outstanding than prophecy. I mean, somebody speaking of events before they happen, and then they just happen in meticulous detail. 
that uh, I don't know of anything more outstanding than that. And so we have all that body, and, and then now, again, that's not a simple process because you have to be ver able to verify that material was written in advance, don't you? And you have to be able to verify that it happened historically. And you have to be able to verify that it's been accurately transmitted. And But if you study and do that, then you've got something. All right, suffice it to say, we're simply saying that, that it does take word, uh, work uh, to read with understanding and to be able to use uh, the Bible in the way that God would have us to. Uh, and, and if we're willing to invest the work in all that we can, and, and I really believe that, that uh, what has happened for years in our society is in a country that was uh, predominant Christian, uh, it was like playing on our home ball field. And we reached a point, everybody was playing on the home field, and we were able to proclaim the message in a society that already believed it because they had been taught and everything like that. And so we got used to just going out and saying, the Bible says so-and-so. Uh, and we got used to, uh, even when it came to reading it, uh, uh, you know, we, there were certain interpretations that became popular, and you could just go with that within a certain framework. But it's not quite the same place now. In the long run, it may be good because we may wind up with a better understanding of the Bible as a result of having to do some things that we didn't do before, Mark. Do you think that they, uh, say a generation ago, that, that most of the efforts were to convince those who had not become Christians to submit to his will versus today where we might be actually having to convince the person that, that this is the truth? before we even get to the point that they need to submit to to God's will. Okay, now in the uh, first century, like with the Christians, they're, they're number no, I one. Mean, I mean like a generation ago. Oh, okay, that uh, generation ago you're saying it was a matter <coughs> of studying what it said on a subject and now we've got to show that it's the truth in the first place? Is right, that... I'm just saying if, if you grow up, if you grow up and, and basically like you said, everybody in the society around you believes in the Bible and believes in Jesus and, and so forth. Therefore, basically the ones that have not are those that basically just don't want to submit to his will. And so on, what I'm asking is, is, okay. is was were the lessons and the in terms of the evangelism was geared toward convincing a person that they need to submit to his will versus, you know, starting back a step before that, you know, before a person can even get to that point, they have to believe. Right. I think it's excellent. That's that's exactly right. That that in the generation, like when I was converted in the 50s, most of the preaching was trying to persuade people who really believed that they need to repent and submit to the will of God. And and that was most of the preaching I heard was uh, uh, it, you trying to persuade people who already believed and respected the Bible and believed in God that they needed to uh, repent and submit to the will of God and, and the effort was in, in that realm. And now you're in a situation where uh, for a majority of our population it's going to have to be proven to them that that is God's will in the first place. And, and, that's, uh, and that's why that a lot of Christians get on some of these uh, talk shows and in arguments and uh, in debates in print and things like that and wind up frustrated because they're just assuming that the people they're arguing with uh, are looking to the Bible as a source of authority and they really don't.
uh, and we're not going to shout belief in abortion out of anybody. And, and we're not going to shout uh, uh, belief that homosexuality is, is, is right and an alternative to life's good. We're not going to shout that out of anybody. And, and we're not going to make them believe it's wrong, but just saying, hey, the Bible says this is wrong. They, they just because they don't believe that the book itself is inspired. And so, right, we're in a... But are we in any different situation than the apostles were in the first century? Not the ones going to the Gentiles. Okay. Going, well, and, and those going to the... Jews. Jesus had the... Uh, it's just a different... They were at a different level, but they... They really had to prove their, their point, and, and that's why that in the book of Acts, think of the sermons there, aren't most of them designed to convince somebody that Jesus is the Christ uh, on the basis of, of evidence itself. So we're in a position, yes, that, that that comes first. There's no sense in trying to persuade a person to repent if he doesn't even believe that what you're talking about is true, or at least he has doubts about it, and so we're in that kind of position. Well, when you're in the position we're in now, you're really in a more difficult spot as a teacher. Because if this person already believes and you just got to persuade him to repent, then you've got the authority that you both agree on. But we're in the situation now where uh, we're going to have to lay down a basis for his belief uh, of that authority in the first place. And, and it's a, it is a longer process. I'm saying of those that are in that category, that it, it is going to be a longer process. I think uh, Mark's point, uh, the Gentiles in comparison with the Jews, the Jews would have believed in God, but then you'd have the problem of presenting the Messiah, Messiah right? Right. Jews believed in God. So now but, we would have both probably a lot of times when you go out into the world. Right. First of all, the... Proof of, about God and right. Now, in our society, in America, most people believe in God. You're talking about 95% of the society. And so with most of them, you can, you can have spend very little time dealing with proof of the existence of God, and then you've got to prove the inspiration of the Bible. But if you were going behind what used to be the Iron Curtain, and you were talking with people, about 40% of the population, according to all the stats I've read, do not believe in God. They claim to be atheists. In East Germany, 75% of the population claims to be atheists. Uh, Hitler did not take over Germany by himself. Uh, hit the, the Hitler, the, the way was paved for him uh, through the theologians and the uh, philosophers, uh, people like Nischke, his favorite philosopher, Sigmund Freud, his favorite psychologist, Charles Darwin, his favorite scientist, all of them were atheists. And then so the way was paved in his thinking uh, so that, and, and it wasn't just Hitler, I'm saying if the society had not been influenced that way, uh, he couldn't have done that. And so now uh, we're in a situation where in a lot of Europe and in behind what used to be the Iron Curtain, uh, there has to be a lot of reasoning. Uh, dealing with the existence, existence of God. On the other hand, if you're in India or Africa, uh, in Africa, for example, there is no language that even has a word for atheist. There's no, no problem. That's, it's, it's a very fruitful field, but there is absolutely no word for atheist in any African language. I read that in some publication not too long back. But anyway, the point is that we need to study and we're looking at the, the method of studying that when we sit down and talk with somebody, 
And among other things they're going to say as you get into the proof of the Bible is that, well, the Bible's a matter of everybody has their own interpretation. Don't you have that when you talk to people about anything? Everybody has their own interpretation of the Bible. And, and, and great, you can. Uh, does, are, do we have a lot of different interpretations? If it can be accurately interpreted in any number of ways, it seems to me that would be evidence that it's not inspired. I mean, after all, it claims to be a, a revelation. Uh, in looking at the Bible from a hermeneutic standpoint, now we looked at exegesis, and that is going back and seeing what it said to those people at that time, and then we make application. Some simple things to remember. Number one, and think on this one, words have no meaning except in sentences. Okay? Words have no meaning. What does the word run mean? I want to give me a definition of run. Run in your hose. Refrigerators running. Run a race. Run a race. Run an office. Run far office. Run in uh, the hose. Uh, you really cannot give a, a precise definition until you find it in a sentence, right? Okay. This is important. Uh, the JW comes and, and you then you talk with him and and he lets you know that uh, you have no spirit. You know that you, when you die, you're like Rover the dog. You're dead all over. And so he comes to this word that is rendered spirit. And he gets out his little dictionary. And he says here, the, the root meaning of this word is, is wind. And it's only, it, it should be either wind or it's breath. And you have no spirit. Well, he's right. The root meaning of the words is like run. It can be used in all those ways. Whether you're saying wind, breath, or something else, you've got the same word there. But the word spirit, uh, is there any similarities between wind and spirit? Sure. Okay, you, you can't see the one, can you? you? You see the effects. Just like run. Is there any similarities between run in a hose and run a race? Or run an office? You, you've got movement uh, that's involved. And so there is, well, that word sometimes does mean wind. Sometimes it does mean breath. And then sometimes it means that inner quality, like God is spirit. And they say, what is it saying? There's God's wind. Uh, you know, that, uh, and therefore he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Well, God is wind, and therefore he must be worshipped in wind and truth. Uh, and yet they do that with people. They play those kinds of uh, games. Words only have meaning uh, in a context of a sentence. Now, second point. Sentences only have meaning in their context. Okay? Everybody want to turn to 1 Corinthians 7 1, just to read that one sentence. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 1. 1 Corinthians 7 1. Good for a man not to marry. That's what the Bible says. That's a sentence. That's what Paul says. Good for a man not to marry. Well, if we say that Paul, if we just go out and say, hey, Paul said it's good for a man not to marry, have we accurately represented Paul there? 
And regularly people quote sentences and verses from the Bible that are just as abused as that. And we know when we read the context, uh, Paul is talking about a present distress, right? In verse 26, and they were being persecuted. And so in context, it would be like uh, me, uh, well, in fact, a lot of young men went through this. And uh, in fact, all he says on marriage is, is modified by verse 26 there. Uh, what do you do when you're, you've got this little uh, girl or a girl likes this, little, this guy and they, they're right on the verge of marriage and whammo, we're going into a war and young men are being drafted. And men went through this in World War II, they went through it in Korea, they went through it in Vietnam. Uh, some of them went through it before going over to the Gulf. And, and so here they, they wanted to get married and, and then the decision is, is it good to get married uh, right before the young man goes off to combat? And so both of them, and so here's a, a mature person that says, in light of the situation now, I think it would be better that you didn't get married. And that, uh, and especially if you happen to be in the country where the fighting's going to take place, and that's the case here. The, the fighting's going to take place right over there. And he goes on, he would spare them the heartache and all that's coming. But then he goes on to say, but it is if you have a passion for one another, and, and, you, and your desire for the relationship is so strong that you cannot contain, then what? Go ahead and marry. You haven't sinned, but if you can control and you're in total control of yourself and, and you can refrain from going all the way and everything, then I'm telling you, it's probably better that you don't marry now. That's my judgment. So when we put it in its context, we have something completely different than that, than that sentence. So we've said that you can't give a definition of a word without a sentence. You cannot give the meaning of a sentence without a context. I'm not saying that every sentence is that way, but I'm saying that you can never be sure of the meaning of anybody's sentence until you see the context. Okay, now, in addition to that, sentences only have meaning in context. I suggest to you that chapters only have meaning when you understand, when you've looked at the entire book. That you, you can't just read a chapter. That chapters have meaning conditioned on the book itself. Uh, turn over to Ecclesiastes. Good one. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5 and 18 through 20. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20. Okay, Steve, if you got it, please. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him. For this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. Okay. So he's saying you go through life, you spend very little time reflecting on life. God keeps you occupied with work, but that's okay. Uh, just get, you know, the physical enjoyment out of it and enjoy yourself. Uh, look at Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 10. 
Ecclesiastes 9, uh, 7 through 10. Uh, Nancy, you have that, please? Mm -hmm. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave, where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Okay. So you have a, God has given you a meaningless life. You're headed for the grave. You're not going to, you're dead like Rover the dog. There's nothing there. So man, get out here and eat and enjoy your wife. That's all you've done. And the JW goes to the tail end of that passage and says, look, you're like Rover the dog. When you're dead all, when, when you die, you're just like, you're just dead all over. So somebody can say, the, the Bible says such and such. Well, does it say it? Yes. Does it teach it? What do we have in Ecclesiastes when we look at the entire book? Is this a book where the Holy Spirit is guiding Solomon and, and what he's saying is, is right, a revelation from the Holy Spirit? Or is it a man that has lived his life and has left God? And he's searching for meaning in life. And, and he comes to a lot of conclusions, and, and, and he tries a lot of wrong things, but he learns a lesson. It, it's all meaningless. It has not. And then finally, after struggling through all kinds of mistakes and bringing misery on himself and, and coming to the conclusion that there was no meaning in life because the bottom line is you're going to die, finally he gets smart and says, hey, I've come to the conclusion that the entirety of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. And so God gave Solomon this tremendous wisdom. He gave him long life. He's got this great mind. He experiences this. He makes a lot of blunders. And God says, I'm going to use you as a bad example for everybody, Solomon. And so does the Holy Spirit want it in the Bible? Does he want Solomon's witness in the Bible? Yes, God wants Solomon's witness in the Bible. But can you read what Solomon said as if it's a revelation for every word? No, you, we read it in its context. And in its context, but yet, and by the way, I've sat in classes in the church where people were struggling to make statements in Ecclesiastes harmonize with other statements in the Bible because they've been in direct conflict. And, they, and then, well, it has to harmonize, though, because it's all inspired. But it does. Pardon? It does harmonize. It, it harmonizes does. in the context. In the right. It harmonizes when you get to the end of it. Right. Right, that's exactly right. And they'll take a passage and say, man, he's saying do such and such here. Uh, and then we've got to, well, how do we harmonize this with over here? Well, the problem is we're taking this out of its context. Okay, we could do the same thing with Job. Can you, can you go to read Job and say, hey, the Bible says this, and therefore this is what God teaches? Or is a lot of Job just some people like you and I who are philosophizing trying to figure out what's going on, and they're wrong more than they're right. That's what Job is, isn't it? So, so the truth is, can a person quote a verse or even a chapter in Job and use it without, without reading the entire book? Can I mislead other people on the teaching of the Bible if I do? Okay, now, what I've just done, the reason I picked these verses and I could go on, Back when I was in the process of studying all this out and 
evaluating the evidence for the Bible, and also the unbelievers put out their evidences against the inspiration of the Bible. And in their material, they will quote from Ecclesiastes and Job and other places, and, and you will hear them say the Bible's full of contradictions. And it says absolutely nonsense type stuff. And what they do is they go to Job, and they go to Ecclesiastes, and they'll go someplace, and they'll pick out some statements that are in direct conflict with the other. And they'll pick out some statements that seem as unspiritual as they can possibly be. And, and, and they pit that up there, and so here's an individual who hasn't read the Bible. And they're sitting there reading all of this. Well, now, where we need to know this is not just from our own personal study, but we need to know how to answer others when they make these statements about contradictions. And don't just say there's no contradiction. Say, I understand how the people teach there are uh, contradictions and all. And, and would you like to have a study on, on simply reading and, and studying the Bible? Because the kind of thing we're talking about is something that anybody can see in a, in a, in a very easy way. But also, from what little we've looked at so far, can we also see how that even among Christians, that if we're not very careful in our study, it's, it's easy to misrepresent the Bible? That can you be sincere and conscientious and still misrepresent it? You mean accidentally misrepresent it? Mm -hmm. Sure can. We can be sincere, we can be conscientious. Uh, uh, remember Paul told Timothy to study to show himself approved unto God, a workman that need not be put to shame and write the word of truth. In other words, if I understand that correctly, Timothy, if you don't diligently study, and the Greek word literally means to give diligence, there's a good chance you're going to be put to shame by what you teach, and you won't stand approved to God. And so there's, there's more involved in teaching the Bible than, remember James says, let many of you become teachers, you take on yourself the heavier judgment. Uh, everybody here with the background of the Bible will know this. Uh, in Israel, how old do a man, did a man have to be before he could begin the public teaching of the Scriptures? 30 years of age. It's no accident <coughs> Jesus was 30, and John the Baptist was 30, and Jeremiah was 30, and Ezekiel was 30. That it was spelled out among them that uh, they did not, you had to be a mature person, 30 years of age, who had studied for a number of years, and then you could begin to teach. Uh, in our system today, we would get very disturbed with a school teacher. In our society today, we want our school teachers to be certified. If they're teaching kindergarten, we want them certified in it. If they're teaching K through three, if they're teaching whatever, we want to know that they have trained and studied in, in that area. And yet, when it comes to the Bible, the chief requirement is willingness, willingness and Sincerity, uh, if you've got a great booming voice, that, that's great, you know. But uh, uh, we, and our young boys as they grow up, uh, if somebody's uh, got the voice and the personality, you, you know, you ought to be a preacher or something like that, and you've got some little gal here who's just as studious as he can be and spiritual, and nobody ever says anything to him. Uh, that we put the emphasis, I'm saying, in the wrong place. Uh, not that the other is not, there's not a place for the other. But the emphasis ought to be on the, the study of the, the scriptures. And I think what we can see here, if you and I are going to be tools for God as disciples to lead others, 
uh, one of the greatest things we're going to have to do is be, in a, be a very good student, that not only do we understand ourselves, but when we deal with people that have been misled in various ways or have had the Bible misrepresented to them, uh, that we can sit down and, and go through this process with them. Uh, one other thing, and then we'll move on to the thing on translation. The epistles are among the hardest uh, of the letters of the New Testament to, to understand. I'm talking about the, like the 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, harder than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts. Anybody think of a reason why that might be? I'm saying that Paul's letter to Corinthians is harder to understand than Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or the book of Acts. You have to know all the circumstances in Corinth. Okay. You have to know the custom of Corinth. You have to know the, all the reasons for which Paul intended the book. And sometimes we're grasping just from trying to read between the lines to see you know, exactly what he was even addressing in certain situations. Okay. Part, what, what, part of that might be because some of it is written first and second or second Corinthians, I guess, to answer questions that they had. So if someone writes me a question, I may not go into deep as much detail as if I was just telling somebody, but rather I'll just answer their question. Sure. Uh, in the epistles, uh, one good illustration I read was that it's like listening to a phone conversation and you're hearing one person. We know, pardon me, that Paul is writing, remember he says in Corinthians that uh, in answer to your questions. Which you, you don't have access to. Right. So, so we've got the answers, but we don't have the questions. And so we, knew, we know that there was something, there were a lot of things wrong in their worship service. They were butchering the Lord's Supper. The, the women were uh, conducting themselves in a wrong way. The, uh, there was immorality. There were all kinds of things. But we've got his answers, but, but the difficulty is we don't have the questions they ask, and we are not there. They're there living in that. So when, when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, put yourself in their position. Somebody could have stood up before the entire congregation, read that letter without comment, and they would have understood it, wouldn't they? Understood every single solitary thing he said. No problem whatsoever. Try reading 1 Corinthians to somebody that's not familiar with all that today. And you, yes, we'll understand some things, but I suggest to you there'd be more there we don't understand than we do, because we've got to go back and try and reconstruct those questions and, and, and try to figure out certain things. On the other hand, what about the Gospels? They were written specifically to cause people to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And so we can take each of the four Gospels and know that, that he tells us plainly, each writer, that the reason he's writing is he wants you to know things about Jesus and for you to come to believe. And, and, the, and the writer of Acts has given us a history of all these conversions and all. We, we can see that. But the letters are sometimes difficult. Now, since they are difficult, there's a few things about them that we can observe. We ought to think twice before we go to anything that's taught in some individual letter and it's nowhere else in the New Testament and then you're going to bind this as a matter of law on somebody. It may be that you're dealing with a custom. It may be dealing, you're, you're dealing with something that was just the most expedient way they did, did something. And so we've got to be very careful because that if, if it's not stated in the law of God, you can't find it in the teaching of Christ, you're, it's not in the commands, and you're picking it out 
Uh, a good example is 1 Corinthians 11 uh, deals with the uh, covering of a woman when praying or prophesying, right? Where else in the Bible does it do that? So it's interesting, at least, that, uh, that if we're dealing with something that is an eternal spiritual truth, that it's only found one time in the entire Bible, and would Paul have even said anything there if they hadn't been doing some wrong things? In other words, did he write 1 Corinthians 11 to explain that to them, or did he write to correct them because of the mistakes they were making? Wrote to correct the mistakes. And so we wouldn't have that. So there again, people have read that and have bound uh, and think that a, that a woman ought to be covered. Uh, even the, the, uh, the long hair. Uh, that, uh, you know, we, there, was, there were times when people believed that a woman literally had to have long hair uh, because he said it. Uh, uh, in that context, well, if you're going to read 1 Corinthians 11 at face value, and you don't, and you're just going to look at it. You're not going to do any exegesis, and, and look at the city. You're just going to look at it at face value. What about women? Should they have long hair, and should they have a covering? I think so. That's what it says. Uh, but is in our society is a covering on a woman a sign of anything? No. Okay, it's not, and what about even the hair? Is, do, do we look at a woman that has long hair and say that uh, that means that she is in subjection to her husband or that she, is, uh, uh, she recognizes the authority of, of, of the male in the church or anything? Do we look in, and then we look at a lady with short hair and we say that means she's not in subjection, she doesn't respect her We're husband? <laughs> We don't do that in our society, it, it, and that's why that we have to go back and read, and then we go back and, and we can read Corinthians, and we can read about their customs, and we can find that uh, Paul was addressing something that was very important in their customs. And so there, there are some eternal truths in that passage, but there's also some things that are tied into their, just their custom and their culture, and so we have to go back and do that and be very careful that we don't find something that is, is in reality a custom of the day on, on somebody in the, in the 20th century. Any comment over anything we've covered? Okay, what about in studying the Bible? The first thing you need is a, we'd all, I think we'd all agree on this, first thing you need is a good translation, right? Uh, what is the best translation? What what were we told for years was the absolute best translation in all good faithful King James. King James. American Standard. Yeah, the American Standard. In fact, Standard was supposed to have been the most literally correct. I was taught just like Alba, and by the way. What Alba said is an absolute truth that no Greek scholar would deny, that if you want a translation that is as literally, word for word, accurate from Greek to English, the 1901 American Standard Version has never been surpassed. Uh, it got the reputation of being high on Greek but short on English. That's why it, that's why it never became popular. It was, was not real readable. Uh, the uh, King James. 
when it was initially written, uh, would have been considered uh, in that category. Uh, what then, uh, by the way, we uh, to show you how tradition can take hold, uh, are there churches that we know that would not have a preacher that would not use King James? Yes, there's mm -hmm. one right here in Well, and there used to be a lot. Uh, I can remember the, the first time I was branded as, as a liberal is when <laughs> I left the King James translation. I started using the New American Standard version. And then when I went to the NIV, Everybody knew I'd lost it then. You know? <laughs> and the, but I mean, that was a, a, a rendering. And then there were translations like uh, the Living Bible and things like that. We, we just knew we were terrible, you know. That, uh, uh, so what about translations? <coughs> Let me ask you this, because uh, it's, it's there, but uh, you can read that afterwards on there and, and look, at, uh, look at page 36, and you can notice how they've got a category of Literal, King James, New American Standard, dynamic equivalence, NIV, New American Bible, that's Catholic Bible. By the way, the Catholic Bible is an excellent translation. The... Uh, you talking about Dewey? Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, now the New American may have been since then, I think, uh, Henry, but I'm not positive on that. Here, here. The good news, the translators, in translating from the Greek to the English, have been as literal word for word as they could and still be understandable. In other words, that uh, anytime the King James, for example, adds anything to complete the meaning, they put it in italics. And, and they really work to be uh, literal. So the American Standard does, the New American Standard. The NIV gives what we call a dynamic equivalence here all right if you read for example in a literal translation it'll say the third hour of the day the sixth hour of the day the ninth hour of the day that's literally what's there if you read it in the NIV it may say nine o'clock in the morning twelve noon and three now is nine twelve and three inaccurate is it literal Okay, it's not literal. What, if, and if you're translating for an English reader, what is better? The third, sixth, and ninth hour are 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3. Okay? All right, now the dynamic... Now, if you're going after somebody from the Orient, and you get over into the latter part of the day, where they use a 24-hour clock, you'd have to expand that. Right. If you get into that area. Right. If we're right. If we're talking about right. If we go into another country, other things. But then can we see then that when when you're translating for English readers that the dynamic equivalent means that you may not put this literal because it doesn't speak to the people now, but you get its exact equivalent in this language. And and you put it there. And that's what we mean by the dynamic equivalent. So the NIV falls in this category. It's, it is a very conservative translation uh, by people who respect the scriptures. But in cases where the literal did not speak to us, it simply gave its equivalent. Uh, and by the way, there's a number of other examples that can be given there. Okay, now free is where not, we not only have the equivalent, 
but we know that words have meaning, and sometimes you can give a better understanding by adding a few words, right? Just like when you're trying to explain something to your child, and you've got a word that you think, I can improve his understanding with giving a few more words. Like, for example, we read the word agape. We translate it love. But the literal meaning of the word is an attitude of heart that desires what is best for the other person. Okay, so in a free translation, you may have not only the word love, but you may have some of the meaning there with it. So, and you also may have some interpretation in areas. Okay, now, what he's saying in here is that he, his own opinion is that the best individual Bible to study from, for an English person, is one that, that uses the dynamic equivalence principle, but... He also recommends that everybody have a more literal translation, such as the New American Standard, so that you can go back and check and, and see what that uh, more literal rendering was, uh, you know, because there is an element of interpretation, interpretation here. So he's saying, really, don't limit yourself to one Bible. The best to do most of your reading from is a dynamic equivalent. The NIV is what he recommends, and I agree with him personally. That doesn't matter, but I'm saying that I, I do agree with him. And then he's saying, but have a literal. With me, I use the New American Standard as my literal, and then I use the, the NIV. In fact, in the classes I'm teaching over the church, I've been using the New American Standard on Sunday and the NIV on, on Wednesday. And, I, and I, when I read through the Bible, I read through in a different translation each time. But anyway, he's saying that to have that now, can you see a place for a free translation? Can you see I can help you in any way? Okay, but can you see a potential danger with a free translation? A lot of interpretation. Okay. Let me give you an example of a literal and a dynamic. Here I'm in 1 Corinthians uh, 7, and this is from the uh, uh, King James. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 36. Uh, do most of you have the NIV? Okay, and I'll be reading this from the King James. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 36. If any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flyer of her age and need to require, let him do what he will, he sinneth not, let them marry. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, and so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, do it well. So that he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, and he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. The wife, okay, let's pause right there. Now, somebody want to read that in the NIV? Where? Where? Yeah, we're uh, 36 and, and 30 through 38. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting along in years, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does the right thing, but he who does not marry her does even better. Okay, can you see that from a standpoint of somebody who's reading, that was a little easier to father, more, more understanding? 
Okay, now here's the living New Testament. Notice this now. If somebody was speaking to tell you this way. If anyone feels he ought to marry because he has trouble controlling his passions, it's all right. It's not a sin. Let him marry. But if a man has the willpower not to marry and decides that he doesn't need to and won't, he's made a wise decision. So the person who marries does well, and the person who doesn't marry does even better. The wife is part of her husband as long as he lives, etc. Can you see then how it's very plain? All right. The living has interpretation, but what about the interpretation? It's accurate. Literally, that's what he's talking about. He's saying that we're in a time of distress, but God doesn't want you being immoral. And so if, if your passion is strong and you can't control, go ahead and marry. That's what I want you to do. But if you can control, it's better not. Uh, I had two children that got married in college. Uh, you know, I would prefer they all wait till they get out. Uh, Tim was, I think, a sophomore. And when Barbara and I talked with them, we didn't try to discourage them because we could tell they were really strongly attracted to one another. They were around one another all the time, you know, and she was coming here and he was going there. And so they came to talk to us about, about marriage, and we told them we would help them out and we would support them in it because we thought that was better. That in other words, if their relationship was such that uh, no big deal, we can control this and wait until after college, I'd say it's better to go ahead and finish your college. But if you, if you can't, go ahead and get married. Uh, and the same thing with Tammy and Chuck, you know, that uh, both were still in college in the same way. They were very close, and so that when they talked with us and all, the same advice, you know, that uh, if they, if, if the relationship was such there that there's no problem or anything like that, then that's different. And that's exactly what Paul's saying, and so that living really conveys it. So when you're uh, studying, study from a dynamic equivalent like the NIV, or one of, one of the others there, my preference is the NIV, it's good to have a literal one, and then something like the Living New Testament uh, can actually be something between that and a commentary. It's not a full commentary, because he's dealing with a passage, but you have to always be aware of the fact that there is an element of interpretation uh, in the paraphrase. But on many times, he can really help you. And so if you're going to do a reading before a congregation, maybe, and if you read all of this in advance, and you're convinced his interpretation is very good in the living, then sometimes you can really make a point. Uh, uh, Danny, you may know, has done this several times with, uh, I, I forget the name of the fellow that he uses, but uh, I can't think of his name right now, but he's done it. It's something that he's already checked out in a more literal, he's compared it in the NIV, he's checked out the Greek in a literary, and then he said, this is good and it's very understandable. And he uses it, that's, that's a good teaching technique. Now, one other source you can get, you can get a Greek in a literary where you don't have to be a Greek scholar, and it just simply gives you the word-by-word -word Greek words of the New Testament with the word-by-word -word English under it. And so you can go back and check any single word that you want and, and make your own decision where there's conflict. Okay? And then uh, another thing to note about translations, which would be to be preferred, you think, from a, a, a safety standpoint? No, one done by a committee or one done by an individual? Committee. Okay, no question. Okay, one done by a committee where the members of the committee were members of various churches 
or one done by a committee and they were all from one church? Variance. Variance. Listen, now a lot of people shoot me for saying this. I don't want, if I give you a choice between a translation and we've got a man that's in the Church of God, a man in the Church of Christ, a man in the Baptist, an Episcopalian, and they have worked together and produced this translation, and I've got this other one here where they're all members of the Church of Christ, I'm going for the first. I'm going to find more of an unbiased attitude. Everybody has their biases in various areas. Uh, so one done by committee where you have a variety. See, nobody's going to let the other guy slip one in. Uh, I guarantee you they're watching one another like hogs. And, and uh, nobody gets any of these pet things in. Uh, they, they're, they're watching one another like hogs. The King James was an outstanding translation in 1611. He didn't satisfy your requirement. Pardon? He didn't satisfy your requirement. Well, for 1611. All those guys were members of the Church of England. Right. But for, I'm saying for 1611. Oh, it was great. Yeah. For, for 1611, but what Henry brought out is exactly right. The, the people were all members of the Church of England. King James was tired of all the fussing that was going on, and he just really wanted to bring about unity. And by the way, the reason that baptism is not translated, it should be immersion. It's a, it's a Greek word that means immersion, but they transliterated it because the Church of England sprinkled and they wanted to be true to the text, but they didn't want to offend the king. So what did they do? They refused to translate that word, and they transliterate it, and we wind up with this Greek word, baptism, in there. It's called politics. Yep. <laughs> and by the way, the reason baptism is in most of the translations now, all the translators know that it's just a word that means immersion, because a lot of people wouldn't buy the Bible. And so they just go ahead and transliterate it. But the advantage of an individual translation and why I'm saying it's good to read them too. You'll read individual translations that will just simply say immersion. He that believeth and is immersed shall be saved. And so I'm saying that there is a place for that individual who's not bound by anybody. And there's a place for the, the committee. Uh, there's a place for the literal translation. There's a place for the dynamic equivalent. There's a place for the free. And so to be a good student, uh, we need to be aware of all of this and work for understanding. Uh, some of the old preachers used to pride themselves on how many verses they could quote. Well, the truth is nowadays, a lot of preachers don't quote, not because they don't study, they quote as much, because they're reading from a plurality of translations and comparing it with the Greek. And, and you get up there and what comes out uh, many times is your own paraphrase. It's, it's hard to read from a number of translations and quote, but the understanding is more important than anything else. I'm embarrassed. Shut up. Okay. Anybody? Any comments? Any comments? Questions? I have a um, New King James. It's called New King. They drop the D and thou's, you know. Right. And uh, sometimes on Sunday morning, when Errol asks me to read, I will read for mine. And to be perfectly honest, it's just not clear. Sometimes they don't say, "Okay, now." from the NIV, you know, right. and say it again. It's a, it's a good translation, and by the way, the New King James is an excellent literal translation. I mean, it's very good to compare, but right, when you're reading to an audience, it's, it's not near as understandable and easy to follow as the NIV. Any other comments? Okay, we'll call it for the night. Everybody get some fresh.